You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, it was a very rich time starting in October 1787 when the Constitution is signed by the members of the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. And then it goes off to the states and you have states like Delaware that just approve it right off the bat. But in the largest states, it's going to be a debate and they're going to set up ratification conventions as it called for in the document. They, they chose separate conventions because if they went to the state legislatures, they figured there would be horse trading. Like, you know, if you vote for my canal project, I'll approve your uh, – I'll approve the constitution. They didn't want that. Some horse trading occurred in any case, but it was set up to be better if they set up separate con- conventions. So they did. They thought they thought that if they had dedicated bodies of people that would be thinking about nothing else but the Constitution, it would be better. And it probably did. The ratification procedure probably served to pass what uh, a Constitution that may have had problems if it had to go through legislatures. It also meant there was a lot of public debate, and I don't have time to to do all of the public debate or to talk about all of it. But I find a few interesting items, um, one of which is uh, appeared in the Massachusetts Sentinel in Boston, October 24th, 1787. And it ridiculed the opponents of the Constitution in an interesting way. Because you really see the creativity of arguments during this, what is really the nation's first big debate. A political dialogue featuring two people, Mr. Grumble and Mr. Union. Mr. Grumble says, Sad times, neighbor. Union. Sad times. And Mr. Union says, Why, what is the matter, neighbor Grumble? Mr. Grumble says, Why, all of our liberties are going to be swallowed up. The whole country is in a confederacy to ruin us. I remember the glorious times when every man had a right to speak what he thought. Mr. Union says, Who hinders you now? Who? Why, everybody. When this report of the convention came to hand, I thought I would go and talk about it with my neighbors. So I went to the barber's shop. And taking up the paper, so says I, it seems this monster which is to devour the liberties of the people has come forth. Immediately, the whole shop was in alarm. Mr. Razor's hand trembled so with indignation that I thought he might have cut my throat. And the whole shop looked as if they didn't care if he had. What's that you say, said a surly ship carpenter. Do you mean that I and my family should starve? Let's come at him, said a blacksmith, a painter, a rope maker, a sail maker, a corker, and a joiner. The federal constitution is the only thing that can save us and our children from starving. Out of the shop with the rascal, said half a dozen different tradesmen. It was in vain that I applied to a merchant for protection, and he assured me that for want of a federal government he had sunk a fortune, apporting cargoes under the state imposts, 
and was undersold by goods from Connecticut. And even my friend Simon Meek, the Quaker, who delights in healing quarrels, would not interfere. But Cooley told me, Friend Grumble, whilst we are in the flesh, we should be obedient to the powers which may be ordained over us. In fine, I was driven from the shop. In the plight of the Israelitish ambassadors, I ran with my complaint to our reverend pastor, who told me that to be bound by this law of equity was perfect freedom. The doctor who tends to my sick child was in the same story, and the honest man from the country who brings me my winter cider vowed that it would have been right cute if they had kicked me out of the shop, for his town thought the new constitution was altogether up to the notch. In a word, every man I had conversed with has been ready to knock my brains out if I said a word against it. Do you call this Liberty Times? Mr. Union responds, Well, but neighbor, what are your objections to the new constitution? Why, as to the matter, I can't say I have any. But then what vexes me that they won't let me say a word against it. It shows, neighbor, that there is some trick in it. Mr. Union. But, neighbor, this is indeed a country of liberty, and every man may speak his mind, especially in a subject which is presented to you for your consideration. But if all orders and degrees of people oppose your speaking against this proposed constitution, the conclusion is that the whole people both see the necessity and give the warmest, warmest approbation of it. And indeed, neighbor, it is no wonder when we consider the horrors of the present situation, the decay of our trade and our manufactures, the scarcity of money, scarcity of money, the failure of the public credit, the distraction of our public affairs, and the distress of individuals, which have all arisen from a want of this very federal government. It is no wonder, I say, that if men are so deeply interested should not be able to sit patiently and hear rivalings against the only remedy which could be applied in success to our present grievances. No man is intended to be deprived of freedom of speech, but the few individuals who oppose the federal government must be surprised to find that the merchant and the tradesman who have been ruined for want of an efficient federal government to regulate trade will resent it, that the landholder who has been taxed so high that the produce of his farm would scarcely pay its rates will resent it. And out of the abundance of the heart, the long train of industrious tradesmen who are now spending their past earnings or selling their tools for subsistence will resent it. Nay, the whole body of an almost ruined people will despise it and execrate the wretch who dares blaspheme the political savior of our country. Those last words in capitals in the Massachusetts Centennial. Now, in the Massachusetts Sentinel. Now, look. It's biased. It reads like uh, one of them old-time government public service announcements where the opposition is really just a straw man, Mr. Grumble, who actually has nothing really to say about the Constitution except there's some trick in it. But it is interesting. First of all, you, you this is written in 1787, but I can't help but think about some of today, today's debates. For instance, what Mr. Grumble is alleging is like, look, I'm trying to talk and I'm being shouted down. So do I have liberties? Do I have freedom of speech? And it's an interesting debate because ideally, like Mr. Union says in this, you know, you should have freedom to express, but you shouldn't be saddened that there's so many people that disagree with you and you should understand why, you know. Yeah, it's a little bit of a dicey issue because, you know, do you 
Do you have a right to be shouted down? Now, all of those people, whether you're talking about 1787 and he's in his barber shop there, it should be an open place of ideas, but it's clearly not. He's being pushed out of the shop. You know, on the other hand, he expressed his liberty, said something about the Constitution, he called it a monster, and then he was kicked out of the shop. You know, and it's like the same debate we're having today about social media. It's like, if you're shouted down because 17 other people say we're on Twitter and you had freedom of speech and expressed something and they sort of shouted you down, is it still freedom of speech? That's just one little thing I note, and it is little. Um, other than that, I would say is that the opponents of the Constitution are being presented as having no real argument. And that's kind of not true. There'll be some arguments to the Constitution that seem sound, and there will be changes to the Constitution, the first Bill of Rights, because of all of those arguments. But that's at least the way it's presented. And that most people support the Constitution. And whether that's true or not, I think there was a broad level of support for the Constitution, I think, that it's correct, as Mr. Union describes, that there were real problems with the way states were taxing each other, or each other's citizens, and that states had this great burden because of the lack of a federal government. It's an interesting little essay. We're going to talk about a bit of the pro-Constitution arguments, how the Constitution was argued, because listening to the way that it was argued gives you insights into, you know, what people thought it was at the time that it was approved. Um, we read the Federalist Papers, but that's really not the be-all and end-all. I want to include a small passage of um, James Madison's October 24th, 1787 letter to Thomas Jefferson, who is currently in Paris and may have some reservations about a document, though he's in general supportive of some kind of improvement over the existing Here's Madison. It appeared to be the sincere and unanimous wish of the convention to cherish and preserve the union of states. No proposition was made, no suggestion was thrown out in favor of a partition of the empire into two or more confederacies. It was generally agreed that the objects of union could not be secured by any system founded on the principle of a confederation of sovereign states, of voluntary observance of the federal law by all of the members would never be hoped for, could never be hoped for. A compulsive one could evidently never be reduced to practice. And if it could involve equal calamities to the innocents and the guilty, the necessity of military force, both obnoxious and dangerous, and in general, a scene resembling much more civil war than the administration of a regular government. Hence was embraced the alternative of a government which, instead of operating on the states, should operate without their intervention on the individuals composing them, and hence the change in the principle and the proportion of representation. Okay, now I'm going to come in here and say a couple things about what James Madison is saying to Jefferson. One, that there's an argument you hear sometimes that states never gave up their sovereignty and Madison is saying clearly as his interpretation of that document, as it's been signed, the way that he explains it to his friend Jefferson is that there couldn't be a system where they didn't give up their sovereignty. Co exclusive sovereignty is a better way to say it. In other words, 
It isn't just the state of Rhode Island, California, or New Jersey that has a relationship with you. You have a direct relationship with the federal government. It's not through the states. It's directly with the federal government. There are certain activities of the federal government because it is indeed federal where indeed the state does intervene such as the selection of a president, or as used to be up, up until the, the 17th Amendment, the selection of senators. This groundwork being laid, the great objects which presented themselves were to unite a proper energy in the executive and a proper stability in the legislative departments with their essential characters of Republican government, also to draw a line of demarcation which would give to the general government every power rec- requisite for general purposes, and such a power without a negative, some for a limited power of legislation with such a negative, the majority finally for a limited power without the negative. The question with regard to the negative underwent repeated discussions and was finally rejected by a bare majority. As I formerly intimated to you my opinion in favor of this ingredient, I will take this occasion of explaining myself on the subject. Such a check on the states appears to me necessary to prevent encroachments of a general authority and to prevent instability and injustice in the legislation of the states. Without a check in the whole over many parts, our system involves the evil of imperia in imperio. If a complete supremacy somewhere is not necessary in every society, a controlling power at least is so by which the general authority may be defended against encroachments of the subordinate authorities, and by which the latter may be restrained from encroachments of the other. If the supremacy of the British Parliament is not necessary, as it has been contended, for the harmony of that empire, it is evident, I think, that without the royal negative or some equivalent control, the unity of the system would be destroyed. The want of some such provision seems to have been mortal to the ancient confederacies, and to be the disease of the modern. Of the Lycian Confederacy, little is known. That of Amphictons is well known to those and have been rendered of little use while it lasted, and the end to have been destroyed by the predominance of the local over the federal authority. The case of the United Netherlands is in point. The authority of a stadtholder, the influence of a standing army, the common interest in the conquered possessions, the pressure of surrounding danger, the guarantee of foreign powers are not sufficient to secure the authority and interest of the generality against the anti-federal tendency of the provincial sovereignties. The German Empire is another example. A hereditary chief with vast independent resources of wealth and power, a federal diet with ample parchment authority, a regular judiciary establishment, the influence of the neighborhood of great and formidable nations have been found unable either to maintain the subordination of the members or to prevent their mutual contests and encroachments. Still more to the purpose is our own experience, both during the war and since the peace. Encroachments of the states on the general authority, sacrifices of national to local interests, interferences of the measures of different states from a great part of the history, form a great part of the history of a political system. It may be said that the new constitution is founded on different principles and will have a different operation. I admit the difference to be material. It presents the aspect, rather, of a federal system of republics, if such phrase may be used, than a confederacy of independent states. Madison's view tells you everything you need to know going into the Civil War. His view is shared by, I believe, 
every American president prior to the Civil War, including James Buchanan, of how they understood the Union, including Franklin Pierce even, of how they understand the Union to be. That it's not sovereign republics joined in a very loose confederacy, never giving up anything, but in permanent Union states who then have certain local police powers and other powers devolved upon them and have powers within the system. You know, he's going to I don't know if he's going to disagree with his past statements, but Madison's going to become a bigger supporter of states' rights when he becomes Virginia governor and also when the Alien Sedition Acts are passed by the federal government. Uh, when he gets into a quibble with Washington over the Jay Treaty, at all these times he's going to you know, question some of his prior beliefs. But that's how he explains it to Jefferson when the Constitution's being formed. And it should be an important part of how we understand the Constitution. Like, so it's worthwhile noting a little bit of how Jefferson replies to Madison. He, uh, it's a short letter, but he, and he has a lot of other things to say, but he says, uh, I will add a few words on the constitution proposed by our convention. I like very much the general idea of framing a government, which should go on of itself peaceably without needing continued recurrence to the state legislatures. I like the organization of the government into legislative, judiciary, and executive. I like the power given the legislature to levy taxes, and for that reason solely approve of the greater house being chosen by the people directly. For though I think a house chosen by them will be very illy qualified to legislate for the union, for foreign nations, etc., yet this evil does not weigh against the good of preserving inviolate fundamental principle that the people are not to be taxed, but by representatives chosen immediately by themselves. I'm captivated by the compromise of the opposite claims of the great and little states, of the latter to equal, and of the former to proportionate influence. I am much pleased, too, with the substitution of the method of voting by persons instead of that of voting by states, and I like the negative given to the executive, this is the veto, with a third of either house, though I should have liked it better had the judiciary been associated for that purpose or invested with a similar and separate power. Interesting. So Jefferson actually wanted an additional veto to come from the courts over congressional legislation. There are other good things of less moment. I will now add what I do not like. First, the omission of a Bill of Rights. We know this about Jefferson. He wanted this. To say, as Mr. Wilson does, that a Bill of Rights was not necessary because all is reserved in the case of the general government, which is not given, it might do for the audience to whom it was addressed, but it is surely a gratis dictum opposed by strong inferences from the body of the instrument, as well as from the omission of the clause from our present confederation which had declared that in express terms yeah with jefferson's concerned about the rights we're going to talk about wilson's opinions after this the second feature i dislike and greatly dislike is the abandonment in every instance of the necessity of rotation in office and most particularly in the case of the president experience confers with reason in concluding that the first magistrate will always be re-elected if the Constitution permits it. He is then an officer for life. So it's interesting. So 
Jefferson predicts the feelings of people later in the 1950s when the 22nd Amendment is enacted. And I think that really what the founders struggled with, there might have been a term limit on the presidency. What they struggled with is um, you go back to the Constitutional Convention, who's leading it? It's George Washington leading that meeting every day. They look up and there he is at the chair. And um, that's an influence. First of all, because it's a little intimidating because anything you say about the president, everybody knows he's going to be the first one. He's already called the president because he's the president of the convention that makes the Constitution. There is even a moment in speaking about executive authority where everyone's quiet in the room. And it goes to Benjamin Franklin to assert that people should feel free to speak their minds on these issues. And so what you kind of have is the second most prestigious, most powerful person. Like Benjamin Franklin's probably the only person in that room that, you know, can say something where it's not going to look like, well, who are you to say something when George Washington is right there? You know, he's almost of an equal stature. He does. And they can have a freer talk about the presidency and how it's going to be elected. Washington certainly voices no objection to that. But it doesn't matter. He's still president. They know he's going to be the first president. And it's not just intimidation. They want him to be the first president. They don't want to limit it. It turns out Washington's going to choose to only serve two terms. But that's his choice. It's not in the Constitution. So uh, it's an interesting thing that Jefferson predicts. There is no rotation currently for Senate or for House. And you have some people serving in those positions an awfully long time. And it's interesting to note that the situation that we still have today in 2021, okay, we don't have it with the presidency. We have it with the other federal offices, uh, was something that Jefferson pointed out is perhaps a uh, thing to change. Mostly he's focusing on the president. I've just told you what I freely I like and I dislike merely as a matter of curiosity. For I know your own judgment has been formed on all of these points after having heard everything which could have been urged on them. I own I am not a friend to a very energetic government. It is always oppressive. The late rebellion in Massachusetts has given more alarm than I think it should have done. Calculate that one rebellion in 13 states in the course of 11 years. It is but one for each state in a century and a half. No country should be so long without one. Nor will any degree of power in the hands of government prevent insurrections. France, with all its despotism and two or three hundred thousand men always in arms, has had three insurrections in the three years I have been here, in every one of which greater numbers were engaged than in Massachusetts, and a great deal more blood was, was spilt. So he maybe thinks that some of its the, the reasons for the convention are exaggerated. He adds a, an interesting postscript. I don't know how long before he wrote the letter in the postscript. He said, the instability of our laws is really an immense evil. I think it would be well to provide in our constitution that there will always be a 12-month between the engrossing of a bill and passing it, that it should be then offered to its passage without changing a word, and that if circumstances should be thought to require a speedier passage, it should take two-thirds of both houses instead of a bare majority. So, like, it's just a kind of slow, an automatic slowdown on the laws so that when you pass a law, 
federal law. It takes 12 months for it to be enacted. And if you want to do it fast, it would be a two-thirds. Uh, it's an interesting point. Certainly something like alien sedition would have been helped by that. I don't know how practical it is. It's really hard to get two-thirds. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics, and NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you, and what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. Maybe you go with like a 60% or something like that. We sort of have it with a filibuster. We sort of had that anyway. Interesting to note. One of the major speeches for the Constitution by a Federalist was James Wilson's speech to a public meeting in Philadelphia, October 6, 1787. This would have been right before Pennsylvania was deciding whether to ratify the Constitution or not. Mr. Wilson then rose and delivered a long and eloquent speech upon the principles of the Federal Constitution proposed by the late convention. The outlines of the speech we shall endeavor to lay before the public Mr. Chairman and fellow citizens, having received the honor of an appointment to represent you in the late convention, it is perhaps my duty to comply with the request of many gentlemen whose characters and judgments I sincerely respect, and who have urged that this would be a proper occasion to lay before you the principles and arrangements of the Constitution that has been submitted to the consideration of the United States. I confess that I am unprepared for so extensive and for so important a disquisition. But the insidious attempts which are clandestinely and industriously made to pervert and destroy the new plan induce me mo to more readily engage in its defense. And the impression of four months' constant attention to the subject have not been so easily effaced as to leave me without answer to the objections which have been raised. Okay, so... James Wilson is pro-Constitution. He was at the full convention. He signed the document he's responsible for, uh, not personally, but along with other people for the Electoral College, the way we elect a president, and many other areas of the document. And he's referring to the fact that some of the attacks on the Constitution were not made in a spirit of, say, logic or examining every phrase, um, but and not always made in public. It will be proper, however, before I enter into the refutation of the charges that are alleged to mark the leading discrimination between the state constitutions and the Constitution of the United States, 
When the people established the powers of legislation under their separate governments, they invested their representatives with every right and authority, which they did not, in explicit terms reserve. And therefore, upon every question, respecting the jurisdiction of the House and Assembly, if the frame of government is silent, the jurisdiction is efficient and complete. But in delegating federal powers, another criterion was necessarily induced, introduced, and the congressional authorities also to be collected, not from tacit implication, but from the positive grant expressed in the instrument of union. Hence, it is evident that in the former case, everything which is not reserved is given, but in the latter, the reverse of the proposition prevails, and everything which is not given is reserved. This distinction being recognized will furnish an answer to those who think the omission of a Bill of Rights a defect in the proposed Constitution. It would have been superfluous and absurd to have stipulated with a federal body of our own creation that we should enjoy those privileges of which we are not divested either by the intention or the act that has brought the body into existence. For instance, the liberty of the press, which has been a copious source of declamation and opposition. What control can proceed from the federal government to shackle or destroy the sacred paladin of our national freedom? You see, this is an interesting argument by the Federalists at the time of the Constitution. What do you need this Bill of Rights for? And the freedom of the press, what could Congress possibly do about the freedom of the press? Time has put these James Wilson comments into more perspective, and you definitely understand that um, even if a republic is a government of us, not all of us, quotes, are really making the calls. And it's easy enough to be cautious that people might get the power and use it for bad ends. So, and it's not, you know, paranoid or conspiratorial just to think that might happen. And all of this is research for a proposed episode in the future that I'm giving to you now on uh, Patreon or Premium that, um, you know, where I'm reading some of the Federalist arguments. But some of them are going to be anti-conspiratorial. You know, like, use logic, use reason. Don't just attack things, that kind of thing. Another objection that has been fabricated against the new Constitution is expressed in this disingenuous form. The trial by jury is abolished in civil cases. I must be excused, my fellow citizens, if upon this point I take advantage of my professional experience to detect the futility, futility, futility of the assertion. Let it be remembered, then, that the business of the Federal Convention was not local, but general, not limited to the views and establishment of a single state, but coextensive with the continent and comprehending the views and establishments of 13 independent sovereignties. When therefore this subject was in discussion, we were involved with difficulties which pressed on all sides, and no precedent could be discovered. The cases open to a trial by jury differed in the different states. It was therefore impracticable on that ground to have made a general rule. The want of uniformity would have rendered any reference to the practice of the states idle and useless, and it could not, with any propriety, be said that the trial by jury shall be as heretofore since there has never existed any federal system of jurisprudence to which the Declaration could relate. Besides, it is not in all cases that the trial by jury is adopted in civil questions. For causes depending on courts of admiralty, 
such as relate to maritime captures and such as are agitated in the courts of equity, do not require the intervention of that tribunal. How, then, was the line of discrimination to be drawn? The convention found the task too difficult for them, and they left the business as it stands, in the fullest confidence that no danger could possibly ensue, because since the proceedings of the Supreme Court are to be regulated by the Congress, which is a faithful representative of the people, and the oppression of government is effectually barred by declaring that all, in all criminal cases, the trial by jury shall be preserved. Okay, a very simple argument. He's saying, look, I was at this convention. I know what went on. That's part of it. And you're just saying because we we made a positive statement about preserving criminal trials by jury to alleviate concern because that's a big issue, right? If you're going to create a new federal government, we're going to make sure that there's going to be trials. We're not saying that we're eliminating them for civil cases just because we didn't protect them. It's a silly argument. This constitution, it has been further urged, is out of a pernicious tendency because it tolerates a standing army in a time of peace. This has always been a topic of popular declamation, especially for Wilson, who's in Pennsylvania, where this has been an issue since the beginning of the colony. They only recently, right before the revolution, got a militia. This has always been a topic of popular declamation, and yet I do not know a nation in the world which has not found it necessary and useful to maintain the appearance of strength in a season of the most profound tranquility. Nor is a novelty with us, for under the present Articles of Confederation, Congress certainly possesses this reprobated power, and the exercise of that power is proved at this moment by our continents along the banks of Ohio. Okay, so there's battles going on. Um, There's forts going on because there's battling with Indian nations in that area. But what would be our national situation were it otherwise? Every principle of policy must be subverted, and the government must declare war before they are prepared to carry it on. Whatever may be the provocation, however important to the object in view, and however, however necessary dispatch and secrecy must be, Still, the declaration must precede the preparation, and the enemy will be informed of our intention, not only before you equipped for an attack, but even before you were fortified for a defense. The consequence is too obvious to require any further delineation by no man who regards the dignity and safety of his country. You know, this is a good argument that James Wilson is making. It's one that's still with us. How much of a defense do you need? You know, and is it reasonable to just say you'll call up the militia when it's needed to protect the country? He's going to be prescient because he won't be around to see it. But during the War of 1812, Madison is going to find it very difficult to fight with militia. Really, though, what Wilson's speech is trying to do is just to answer the objections. Some of them he feels is totally unfounded or totally unfounded. And it's an important decision because Pennsylvania is like the first large state to approve the Constitution here. It's been argued, Wilson says, that the federal government will be framed to destroy the states, to reduce them to mere corporations, organizations on paper alone, and eventually annihilate them. Wilson says this is crazy. There is no federal plan without states, Wilson says. On their existence depends the existence of the federal plan. The president, for instance, is chosen 
by the electors who come from states. If there's no states, there's no electors, there's no president. He also points out a benefit to Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania's got a large debt. Why? Because the federal government wasn't effective enough. If this federal government is approved for Pennsylvanians, they will be able to transfer that debt to the federal government. And this will be a competent federal government capable of paying it. All this argument that states are going to be reduced, that the people who lose power, Wilson says, is silly. Look, it's actually an increase. Right now, representatives to the Confederation Congress are appointed by the state's legislature. Under this system, the House of Representatives will be voted by by the people at large in districts defined by the state and proportioned according to their population by the federal government. You're actually increasing the democracy. You're increasing the power that citizens within a state have. It also shows you that Wilson is a supporter of popular elections. And so when we hear arguments that really go to, well, the founding fathers didn't want um, Senate elections to be popular votes. Well, that's true. It wasn't in the Constitution, but that was part of a compromise. And that it would be changed later wouldn't be so horrible because this is the very system they devised for the House of Representatives, that should, they should be elected by the people. Wilson actually celebrates that. And Wilson, James Wilson, although he's not well known to many, unless they study these things, should be in every way considered a founding father, if you're going to come up with that term. So anyway, just the thought that it's not so horrible that we have um, popular elections. There were some issues with popular elections, and that is part of the reason why the framers of the Constitution wanted that to be used at a district level where it's more manageable, but perhaps not at a state level or certainly not at a federal level where it wasn't clear how they'd make a popular election work like that. For instance, he says, you critics predict a baneful aristocracy will develop in the Senate. And you have to remember, everyone's thinking about the Romans. So they're thinking about that Roman Senate and that it's mostly going to be rich and wealthy people. The body branches into two characters, the one legislative and the other executive. It can't act on its own. In other words, it has to approve some of the president's executive actions, like appointments, for instance. And it has a role in passing laws, but it doesn't act without the House and it doesn't act without the president's signature. Now, what he does says is, I confess that in the organization of that body, a compromise between competing interests is discernible. But he says that ought to command a generous applause. In other words, if you're talking about the Senate being one of this aristocracy, an aristocracy that's not going to get anything done because it's a bunch of like old men quabbling. Well, that's part uh, old men quibbling with each other. Well, that's part of the reason that there is a Senate. To be sure that there's checks and balances. The power of taxation has been treated as an improper delegation to the federal government. But Wilson says, when we consider that this Congress is going to have duties such as protecting the nation, such as discharging the debts of the nation, how can it do it without the tax authority? 
Wilson closes, after all, my fellow citizens, it is neither extraordinary or unexpected that the Constitution offered to your consideration should meet with opposition. It's the nature of man to pursue his own interest in preference to the public good. And I do not mean to make any personal reflection when I add that it is the interest of every numerous, of a very numerous, powerful and respectable body to counteract and destroy the excellent work produced by the late convention. All the officers of government and all the appointments for the administration of justice and the collection of public revenue, which are transferred from the individual to the aggregate sovereignty of the states, will necessarily turn the stream of influence and emolument into a new channel. Every person, therefore, who either enjoys or expects to enjoy a place of profit under the present establishment will object to the proposed innovation. Not in truth, because it's injurious to the liberties of his country, but because it affects his schemes of wealth and consequence. I will confess indeed that I am not a blind admirer of this plan of government, and that there are some parts of it which, if my wish had prevailed, would certainly have been altered. Well, Wilson, for instance, wanted a direct popular election of the president. But when I reflect on how widely men differ in their opinions, and that every man, and the observation applies likewise to every state, has an equal pretension to assert his own, I am satisfied that anything nearer to perfection could not have accomplished. Could not have been accomplished. Well, one of the first critics to attack Wilson will be a Democratic Federalist. I don't know who the person is, but it was printed in the Pennsylvania Herald as these debates are occurring in October 1787. In the first place, Mr. Wilson pretends to point out that a leading discrimination between the state constitutions and the Constitution of the United States in in the former, he says, every power which is not reserved is given, and in the latter, every power which is not given is reserved. And this may furnish an answer, he adds, to those who object that a Bill of Rights has not been introduced to the proposed federal constitution. If that doctrine is true, and since it is the only security that we have for our natural rights, it ought to at least to have been clearly explained in the plan of government. So the Democratic Federalist says in response to Wilson, okay, James Wilson, you're saying this, but that's all we have. It doesn't say it in the document. The second section of the present Articles of Confederation says, each state retains its sovereignty, freedom, and independence, and every power, jurisdiction, and right which is not by this confederation expressly delegated to the United States in Congress assembled. This declaration, for what purpose I do not know, is entirely omitted in the proposed Constitution. And yet there is a material difference between this Constitution and the present confederation, for Congress and the latter are merely an executive body. It has no power to raise money. He's talking about the confederation. It has no jurisdiction judicially. In the other, on the contrary, the federal rulers are vested with each of the three essential powers of government. Their laws are to be permanent to the laws of the various states. What then will there be to oppose their encroachments? Should they never pretend, should they ever pretend to tyrannize over the people, their standing army will silence every popular effort. It will be theirs to explain the powers which have been granted to them. So what he's saying is you create this constitution, you have an army, you have supreme government, 
It is in the second section of the third article of the federal plan, the judicial power shall extend to all cases in law and equity arising under the Constitution. It is very clear that under this clause, the tribunal of the United States may claim a right to the cognizance of all offenses against the general government, and libels will probably not be excluded, okay? So to explain what the Democratic Federalist is arguing in response to Wilson, he's saying, you're creating a supreme federal judiciary. It's going to be supreme over the state judiciaries, and then it's going to decide what is a crime. It can decide that a crime of libeling the United States government is a crime and try you. Nay, those offenses may be made by them construed or by law declared treason, an offense which comes literally under their express jurisdiction. So if you're talking bad about the United States, that could be treason. This is actually going to come up with the Alien and Sedition Acts. They're not going to be exactly considered treason, but they're going to be some penalties for American citizens for saying something bad about the United States government. Where then is the safety of our boasted liberty of the press? And in case of a conflict of jurisdiction between the courts of the United States and those of the several commonwealths, is it not easy to foresee which of the two will obtain the advantage? Under the enormous power of the new confederation, which extends to individuals as well as to states, a thousand means may be devised to destroy effectively the liberty of the press. The second and most important objection to the federal plan, which Mr. Wilson pretends to be made in a disingenuous form, is the entire abolition of the trial by jury in civil cases. It seems to me that Mr. Wilson's pretended answer is much more disingenuous than the objection itself, which I maintain to be strictly founded in fact. He says that the cases open the trial by jury differing in the different states. It was therefore impractical to have made a general rule. This answer is extremely futile because a reference might have easily been made to the common law of England, which obtains through every state and cases and cases in the maritime and civil law courts would, of course, been accepted. I must also directly contradict. So in other words, just to Mr. Wilson made this legal point that, hey, I mean, laws are different in different states. So we weren't going to say in the Constitution that you can do this or not do that. And also there's maritime law. And, you know, a democratic federalist is saying essentially, yeah, I mean, you're, you know, is saying essentially, yeah, I mean, we know about maritime law. Don't include that. And then as far as the differences, they all subscribe to common law, which is, you know, goes back to England. Mr. Wilson, when he asserts there is no trial by jury in the courts of chancery, it cannot be unknown to a man of his high professional learning that whenever a difference arises about a matter of fact in the courts of equity in America or England, that fact is sent down to the courts of common law to be tried by a jury. And this is what the lawyers call a feigned issue. This method will be impracticable under the proposed form of judicial jurisdiction for the United States. I wish the learned gentleman had explained to us what is meant by the appellate jurisdiction as to law and fact, which is vested to the superior court of the United States. As he is not thought proper to do it, I shall endeavor to explain it to my fellow citizens, regretting at the same time that it has not been done by a man whose abilities are so much superior to mine. The word appeal, if I understand it right, 
is in its proper legal signification includes the fact as well as the law and precludes itself every idea of a trial by jury. It is a word of foreign growth and is known only in England and America in these courts which are governed by the civil or ecclesiastical law of the Romans. These courts have always been considered in England as a grievance and have been established by all the usurpations of the ecclesiastical over the civil power. It is well known that the courts of chancery in England were formerly entirely in the hands of the ecclesiastics, who took advantage of the strict forms of the common law to introduce a foreign mode of jurisprudence upon the specious name of equity. Pennsylvania, the freest of American states, has widely rejected this establishment and knows not even in the name of a court of chancery. And in fact, there cannot be anything more absurd than a distinction between law and equity. It might perhaps be suited to those barbarous times when the laws of England, like almost every other science, was perplexed with quibbles and Aristotelian distinctions. But it would be shameful to keep it up in these more enlightened days. At any rate, it seems to me that there is much more equity in a trial by jury than in appellate jurisdiction from the fact. The um, Most of the concerns of the um, Democratic Federalists did not come to fruition. You know, the federal government did not eliminate jury trials. And if you are acquitted for a crime that is um, alleged that you committed by the state of Rhode Island or the state of California, a federal court can't come in and appeal, you know, override that jury's decision. Now, there are cases where if the finding was so completely unconstitutional that, yes, they could do it. But th- those are pretty rare. Those are pretty rare. And usually those are in the favor of defendants. Yeah, most of his uh, concerns didn't come to fruition. But this is what the arguments of um, to Wilson that were presented. There's hundreds of pages of debates about the Constitution, and we should read more of them. They give some insights, and I plan to do more podcasts. This is just uh, what you're getting here is some of the live research material that might be part of a future podcast. So thanks for your support. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.